Section 4 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hannah Thompson. Section 4. Significance of the Brain Being a Double or Pair Organ Our brains consist of two perfectly matched organs, technically called the right and left hemispheres. As regards their gray matter, they correspond furrow for furrow, lobe for lobe, and convolution for convolution. Now, with the partial exception of the hands and feet, the salient fact about other pair organs in the body is this, that either one of the pair can do the whole business of both, if necessary. It is not one of the two eyes which sees red while the other sees green. Nor, if a man knows the two languages, does one ear hear only English and the other only German. What one eye sees, the other sees, so that if a man should lose one eye, with the remaining eye he might become either an astronomer or a microscopist. Some persons have been known to live for many years with only one lung to breathe with. I once was called in consultation to see a strong working man who had lived for thirteen years wholly unaware that he had only one kidney, the other having been destroyed by a stone becoming impacted in the tube leading from it when he had an attack of kidney colic. It was a similar mishap in the tube of the remaining kidney, which first showed what his defect was. It is evident, therefore, that the chief reasons why we have pair organs is, first, for convenience, due to the body itself being generally two-sided, right and left, and secondly, to ensure against emergencies, just as a man will provide himself with two keys for the same lock, lest he lose one. As regards our brains, however, there is one exception to this rule about pair organs, and a division of labor between the two hemispheres, in respect of the control of those muscular movements which are of a voluntary character, the centers of these governing the right half of the body, occupying a tract in the gray cortex of the left brain, while those of the left half of the body are correspondingly located in the right hemisphere. The most probable explanation of this arrangement is that it ensures a more perfect balance between the two sides of the body in its muscular movements. Thus, the two eyes need to move in almost perfect harmony, and on that account there are special crossings of nerve fibers from side to side to secure this unity of action. But with respect to thought itself, the above-mentioned law about pair organs holds perfectly. It has been repeatedly shown by post-mortem examinations that persons have lived for years with only one hemisphere in working order, the other having been virtually destroyed by disease. But with the exception of parts in one half of their bodies being paralyzed for voluntary movements, such as those of the arms and legs, they have thought and acted and transacted business as well with one half of the gray matter with which they started life, i.e. with only one hemisphere, as others are able to use one eye for all purposes after losing its mate. 
Of many such instances, we need cite only that of a man who for several years was under the observation of an expert neurologist who published a history of his case with a full description of the conditions found in his brain after death. Footnote, Dr. Pierce Bailey, American Journal of the Medical Sciences, March 1889. The patient had always been strong and well and was 47 years of age when he awoke one morning with his whole left side numb and paralyzed. He remained thus paralyzed for ten years till he died, but meantime his speech was perfectly normal, his reading good, and his memory unaffected. He gave no sign of mental weakness, but was always intelligent, patient, cheerful, and particularly good in attention. He read the papers constantly and liked to talk politics. He bore his disability bravely, and was neither depressed, emotional, irritable, nor apathetic. At the autopsy, a large cyst full of fluid occupied the anterior part of the right hemisphere with the whole tissue disorganized and without any remains of gray matter, while the posterior half of the hemisphere was everywhere atrophied. Microscopical examination of the tissues showed the same destruction of the nerve elements. Dr. Bailey concludes with saying, putting altogether the man during life, manifested nothing to indicate that the power of operations of his mind had been affected, and yet after death the whole of one hemisphere was found to be greatly lessened in size and impoverished in cellular constituents, and the frontal lobes which some regard as the seat of the highest cerebral functions were almost totally annihilated on one side. On the other hand, there is one anatomical fact which might give color to the supposition that our two brains are constructed to operate virtually as one organ. At the bottom of the cleft separating the two hemispheres, there is a large bridge named the corpus callosum, four inches in length and which is made up of bundles of white fibers which pass from one brain to the other. It has been supposed that the function of this commissure, as it is called, is to make the various brain centers in the two hemispheres work together, as some of its fibers have been traced from certain areas of the cortex down to this bridge and across it to corresponding areas in the opposite brain. This surmise was apparently strengthened by the frequent absence or only partial development of this commissure in the brains of idiots or of feeble-minded subjects. But the progress of research has not confirmed the theory that the two hemispheres are functionally united by this connecting bridge, for in cases of mentally defective subjects where the corpus callosum was found wanting, other organic abnormalities were also invariably found which had to be taken into account as well. Meantime, numerous reports have been published of post-mortem examinations performed by distinguished neurologist on persons who during life showed no signs of mental defect and yet in whom there was no corpus callosum between the two hemispheres in each of these subjects also there was no other abnormality present in the brain most of these cases were only accidentally discovered in the bodies of persons dying from ordinary diseases because nothing in their antecedent history suggested the existence of their anatomical peculiarity Thus, Eichler reports the case of a man 43 years of age, 
a laborer who during life had showed no mental peculiarities, but was a diligent, capable workman, a good husband, and in every respect sober, quiet, and well-behaved, and could read and write, but in whom the corpus callosum was entirely absent. The eminent neurologist, Professor Erb, in reporting two similar cases, remarks that, when the brain is otherwise well-developed, with absence of the corpus callosum, there may be no disturbance of motility, coordination, general or special sensibility, reflexes, speech, or intelligence. Considering the rarity of autopsies in which careful examinations of the brain are made, such cases may be quite common in the general population, without anything in life betraying their existence. Undoubtedly, this connection between the two brains may be of use in providing against some accidents to either of the cerebral pairs, but these instances of its absence only serve to prove that for performing the ordinary functions of mental life, the two hemispheres are wholly independent of each other. Indeed, one investigator of this subject remarks that the problem of the use of the corpus callosum is still unsolved, as its absence appears to be so little missed. Footnote. The subject of absence of the corpus callosum is fully treated in an article by the well-known brain anatomist Professor Alex Bruce in Brain, 1889, pages 171 through 179. The inference from these facts is perfectly obvious. If one half of the total gray matter of our brains is distributed in one hemisphere and the other half in the second hemisphere, it is not for the purpose of doubling or even increasing our mental capacity. We might lose one half of our gray matter, provided the loss is only on one side, and the other side remains whole, without losing a single idea thereby. In other words, we might reason, argue, calculate, love or hate, like or dislike, or in short, be altogether ourselves mentally, with only one half of our gray matter left to us. We therefore, as persons, do not depend for our personality upon the number of ounces of gray matter which our cranial cavity contains, but rather on the fact whether the gray matter of one of our hemispheres be in good condition or not. If it is, then the gray matter of the other hemisphere is not needed by us for the purpose of thinking. Our gray matter as such is halved, but we ourselves are not only halved into two half-selves by this bilateral distribution, but we remain the same mental unit as ever if only we can keep intact that one of the two hemispheres which, as we will see later, is the sole seat of thought. These undoubted facts, therefore, lead to just as undoubted a conclusion, namely, that everything involved in our conscious personality, while related to gray matter, is only related to, but not originated by, gray matter. For if it were originated by gray matter, then both hemispheres would be equally necessary to our complete personality. If a stream of water comes from two equal sources, the drying up of one stream will leave only half the quantity of water running, and just so must the stream of thought fall off one half when one hemisphere is injured, if it originates in the two perfectly equal hemispheres. Or to put it conversely, if gray matter originates thought, 
then both our hemispheres must share equally in producing thought, for one has just as much gray matter as the other, and with just the same arrangement and organization of it. It is these demonstrated truths which, as we have remarked before, prove so embarrassing to those who hold the view that the brain makes the mind. As one hemisphere is quite enough for all mental requirements, they cannot but regard on their principles the other hemisphere as quite superfluous. So it would be if their principles were valid. If thought is actually a secretion or product of the brain, as bile is a secretion of the liver, then the case with the brain is the same as if we had two fully developed livers which, however, could not be made to produce more bile than one alone does. If our brains are never anything more than the instruments of a thinker, the thinker might very well have two such instruments, and use either one as he chooses. I have been informed by watchmakers that they grow so accustomed to use only one of their eyes at their work, that in time they become unable to use the other eye for it. We shall see further on that the human thinker likewise becomes so accustomed to use only one of his brain pair for thought, that it is doubtful if he ever uses its fellow to formulate a single idea, with which one of the pair he will choose to do his thinking for life depends upon a sort of accident, almost of the nature of a whim, during the days of childhood. So far we have been gradually approaching the central subject of all our discussion, namely the relation of the brain to thought. Heretofore we have referred to certain ascertained localizations of brain functions in special places in the brain cortex, but none of these functions yet mentioned are necessarily identical with thinking or thought. A sensation like that of sight is not thought, however much of thought, after its reception, it may give rise to. Likewise, a muscular movement in response to excitation of the corresponding area in the cortex is not itself an act of thought, however it may follow upon thought. Now, what is thinking? We are precluded from asking metaphysics to answer this question, because our subject deals only with the relations of a thing of physics, i.e., brain substance to mind. We are called upon instead to answer the question, are there definite localities in the brain substance which have as close relations to acts of pure thinking as we have found to be the case in connection with acts of seeing or of hearing? Unlike the metaphysician, who would begin with defining what thought and its elements are, we can only cite concrete examples of thinking done by or through an active human brain. A judge, when he takes the brief submitted to him and sits down to write out his opinion, is thinking. An orator making ready his oration to sway an assembly is thinking. An author at work on a book is thinking. A philosopher pondering a subject in philosophy is thinking, and so on. Now, is this mental faculty of thinking so dependent upon the material arrangement of brain gray matter and special localities thereof that, just as physical injury in the cortical sight area may cause total blindness, so a similar injury in these special areas, all other brain areas remaining intact, would make it impossible for the judge to write an opinion, the orator to compose his speech, or the author to go on with his book. It is even so, 
and the demonstration of how and why it is so furnishes more data for the correct estimation of the true relation of the brain to the mind than any of the facts which we have heretofore been considering. It has been discovered that certain well-defined areas of the brain cortex minister as directly to human thinking as others do to special sensations or to movements, and when once we appreciate their significance, we must admit that no greater discoveries than these have been achieved in science. We cannot ask to be led higher than to the very seats where thought becomes articulate, and we may well pause when we find ourselves unmistakably there, to ask what it all means. We have been seeking for the material whereabouts of mind, if such there be, and hence the question whether we can come into the physical neighborhood of some great and purely mental faculty cannot but involve the solution of our whole problem. It was indeed a great step to discover just where a sensory stimulus traveling from the outside world along a nerve fiber ends, not only in a physical stopping place, but in a conscious perception. We are, however, far more than conscious selves only. We are thinking selves, and nothing could be more important than to investigate the physical basis of the one transcendent human endowment which is so associated with thought itself that no true thinking is possible in man without its exercise. End of section 4